This episode of Manage Smarter is brought to you by SalesFuel Sales Manager Training. Based on the Sales Manager's Guide to Greatness, it's a 36-lesson on-demand program to upskill your sales manager so they can execute your vision and drive consistent revenue growth. Watch a free lesson and find out more at salesfuel.com SMT. Welcome to the Manage Smarter Podcast with hosts C. Lee Smith and Audrey Strong. We're glad you're here for discussions on new ways to manage smarter, hire, develop, and retain talent, improve results, and propel team performance to new heights. This is the Manage Smarter Podcast. Lee, our guest today has a compelling life story. I mean, earning an e-commerce lifestyle and income at the age of 15, interesting upbringing down in Georgia, um, interesting family, and a JD, one of the youngest people to graduate from law school at Georgia State. Is that right, Ali? That's right. Yeah. So what a, what a wizard we have with us today. Welcome to Manage Smarter, everyone. I'm Audrey Strong, Vice President of Communications here at SalesFuel and Lee. I'm Celie Smith, the President and CEO of SalesFuel. And so you've read his bio, Ali Awad, also known as the CEO lawyer on social media, that's his Twitter, a successful lawyer entrepreneur with his own multi-million dollar law firm. It is Ali Alad Law and it is a personal injury company, just so you can know kind of law he's practicing. He also teaches lawyers, doctors, and other professionals how to brand themselves digitally and generate clients through social media and was running, like I said, an e-commerce store at the age of 15. What was I doing? Wondering about who, if I could get a date. That was probably about it. So, I knew welcome. I couldn't. I just I, I didn't even try. <laughs> <laughs> well, nobody could. That's why we had to find something else to do. Right? <laughs> so, Ali, welcome to the show. I don't even know where to start with you. You've, you're so dynamic in so many different areas. Maybe we start with the childhood and why you're so oriented toward entrepreneurship. Sure. So, let me start with a quick introduction. My name is Ali Awad, and I help injured people make a lot of money. Okay. A lot of money. Nice <laughs> <one>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, that, it's, it's funny because that I used to like really hate my name. And I used to think mm. that my name was such uh, um, an impediment to success because people couldn't pronounce it. And it was just funny. It was weird. So I figured out a way to use it, you know, offensively instead of always defensively. You know, um, going back to my childhood, I was called, you know, I was always called Prince Ali and people would come and, you know, sing around me and. Uh, I grew up in a very Arab Muslim household, even though it was in the Bible Belt in South Georgia. So we only spoke Arabic at home. Mm. But the city that I grew up in, in Dalton, Georgia, had about an 80% Hispanic population. So here I am, the Arab kid, one of six, going to school, realizing, okay, well, I'm not really that good at English, so I'm going to have to figure this out. And then all of my friends spoke Spanish. Oh, wow. So I would speak Arabic at home. English at school and Spanish with my friends. And so that's how I became, you know, fluent trilingual at a very young age. Uh, so just a little bit about my background story. Like I said, I grew up in Dalton, Georgia. And um, probably the biggest thing that, that I remember from my childhood was always being scared of the police hmm. because my parents did not have citizenship. And so, and they didn't even get citizenship until 2017. So even after I graduated law school, became an attorney, um, and even a year after I was already practicing, a year and a half after I started practicing, that's when my dad finally received his citizenship. And so I always had this chip on my shoulder because um, we were going to do whatever it took to make it without something that's really, really important, like 
the ability to actually work legally and the ability to um, take advantage of any sort of loans or government opportunities or things like that, you're just kind of out on your own. And so I grew up doing a lot of cash style businesses, mechanic shops, selling cars. I was just talking to my dad the other day. He said, I sold my first car when I was nine. Um, we were just in a mechanic shop and I called him. I was like, Hey dad, there's this guy out here that wants a car. He's like, okay, tell him $1,100. I'm like, Hey man, $1,100. <laughs> so somehow I sold my first car at age nine, but I was always interested in the internet. And, um, so that's why I started, you know, messing around on eBay. I started my first eBay sale in 1999 when I was nine years old. I remember selling two 15-inch Rockford Fosgate subwoofers because I was really into car audio at the time. Um, I totally lied about the description of the product. I said they were brand new, perfect condition, but I never tested them. And so it cost me like $30 to ship these things out. It was so expensive. Um, needless to say, the guy asked for a refund through eBay. And so my first business transaction ever online was a huge disaster and a failure. Um, which has kind of been the, the moral of my story and the, the theme that happens throughout my life is um, at the first time I do anything, the first time anyone does anything, you're not going to be an expert. And you just mm -hmm. have to try it again and do better and better and better. And so I did a lot of different businesses between graphic design and you know, mechanic work and car audio. I was selling you know, speakers, amplifiers, T-shirts, you know, polos, whatever I could get my hands on. And I would just sell it. I'd buy it from one distributor, sell it to another till I got really, really good at it. And then, um, then I went to law school and figured out that I could apply the use of the internet with my law practice. One of our salespeople here at SalesFuel, her dad has a, has a phrase and I'll clean it up a bit. Uh, it's like, he says, you always screw up the first one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's like, if you just realize, yeah, it's like, yeah, the first one, eh, it's not going to be pretty. You know, it's like, you just get better and better. That's, you know, that's, that's what you did. That's, that's pretty much how you have to go at it. Otherwise, you, if you never start, you're never going to get there. Absolutely. I so, like how yeah, you, oh, go ahead, Lee. Uh, I was going to ask, uh, let's say you, what advice would you give to managers then who may have an employee then who either has immigration concerns or has immigration concerns about their family? How to be more aware of that? Okay, that's a, that's a fantastic question. and I've never been asked that. Um, I'm going to be very biased in my response here. Mm -hmm. So um, if you ha are an employer and you have immigrant employees and people that have any sort of issues with immigration – I will bet money on it that these guys have more grit and work ethic than anyone else in your organization because they're going to do whatever it takes to hold on to that opportunity. They don't have this uh, sense of entitlement that a lot of people do. And so I was just doing an audit of my company. Um, we have about 20 employees now and every single one of them has this sort of grit and work ethic in their background, whether they come from an immigrant family or whether they came from a poor family or whatever it was, no one had that silver spoon growing up. And so um, my advice to anyone that has these types of employees is um, help them, encourage them, push them to their absolute limits, and then protect them when the time comes because they will be unbelievably loyal to you. And there's no price tag on loyalty. And there's just, it's just a good feeling when you can actually help legitimately good people. And so... Um, I feel like you're at an advantage if you have employees that are from immigrant uh, families. In fact, 
the reason I believe this so strongly is because I grew up in Dalton, Georgia, which is known as the carpet capital of the world. That's right. And the reason it's the carpet capital of the world is really for two reasons. There's a scientific reasons because Dalton is sort of in a valley. And for every 17, for every one pound of carpet, you need 17 pounds of water to manufacture it. So we had oh, sort wow. of the ecosystem for it. But in addition, we had a very strong Mexican. And I don't mean that, you know, stereotypically or racially. I mean, yeah, a lot of these people came from Mexico. So there was a huge Mexican population of employees. And all of the carpet mills were hiring Mexican employees instead of the regular American employees because these people would work for six or seven days a week, 10 or 11 hours a day, and they would give you an honest day's work. And they're happy, you know, even if it's under minimum wage cash under the table, because I know a lot of those carpet mills operated that way. Now, this is in the 90s and the 2000s. I'm sure things have changed and things have evolved. But the reason Dalton got to that level was for no other reason financially than because of the backs of immigrant labor. And so I have a very strong you know, attachment to that because I even studied abroad in Mexico and to test out my Spanish and see if I really knew what I was doing. And when I was there, I realized two things. One, it's normal to work six days a week for 10 to 12 hours a day. That's normal. Sundays were their days off. Two, if you work a normal job your entire life, typically you cannot afford to buy your own home. They're so expensive. And so if you come from that kind of background and you have the opportunity to work and let's just say make, you know, minimum wage working at McDonald's for $7.25 an hour, you know, and work two full-time jobs, 80 hours, and say you clear five or $600 after taxes, you're making probably five to 10 times more than your family back home. And within one or two years time, you can save up enough money to buy your own car, you know, get a small little house or something like that. And that's exactly what I grew up around. So I saw that the entire, um, like my entire surroundings were Mexican families moving into apartments, 20, 30 people at a time, renting a small place for, you know, three, 400 bucks a month. And in two years time, every person in that family had a car, had a house, had everything. And I saw that in front of me growing up. So please, if you have immigrant employees, do not underestimate their work ethic they will give you an honest day's work. And obviously I feel very strongly about that. So that's my opinion. Your background makes you really an expert in adaptability. So because we're the Managed Smarter Podcast, my, you had to, you work, you kind of like said I was the square peg in the round hole and, you know, I'm Palestinian American and then being in Georgia of all places and you having to parry and pivot and sort of get alongside different groups and relate to them. Um, what is your advice to managers who might have some of those people on staff? How can you help them adapt? And then how can the manager adapt to help them? So um, I have a, a unique style of hiring. You know, they mm -hmm. say hiring is guessing, firing is knowing. Um, I give everyone a 90-day trial period just to see if they like me and I like them. But during the first few weeks, I'm uh, – overly difficult on the new employees and because I want to see how well they can adapt to a fast-paced environment. I don't want to function as just an average firm or a good firm or even a great firm. I want to be the best and I'm going to do whatever it takes to become the best and I can't do that with mediocre work ethic around me. So 
the very first few weeks, I put as much pressure as I can on these new employees, literally to see if they're going to make it or break it. If they break, that's fine. It was never meant to be. You, they usually last a week or two weeks anyway. The ones that make it become incredibly successful in my organization and they rise in the ranks every single year. So in terms of adaptability, going back to your question about adaptability of whether your employees can adapt to that kind of environment, put them in an environment where you can determine their level of adaptability. Some people do a great job of faking it, you know, and they can pretend like they're doing good work, but, um, what are some of the examples of how you do that? What are some of the things you give them to do? Um, well, I, I pay more so that I can expect more. So I don't hire minimum wage employees. I don't hire anyone with a minimum wage work ethic. In fact, if you interview with me and you ask for a really, really low starting salary, it tells me that you don't believe in yourself and your value enough. And so, um, and I, I, it's just always been that way. Every time I go through, you know, every time I hire an employee at, a, at an entry level or a very low level, they expect to produce low level. And so one good employee is better than three mediocre ones. Um, so the way that I do it is by um, giving them two to three times more workload than an average employee should be able to handle. Um, and I just want to see how they work under pressure. You know, I was, uh, with, I was talking to Jesse Itzler. I don't know if you guys know him. He's one of the owners of the uh, NBA Hawks, or the Atlanta Hawks. And, um, you know, he had this beautiful quote that's always going to resonate with me, that pressure is a privilege. You know, we think that being under pressure and having stress is a problem, but pressure really is a privilege because it gives you the opportunity to grow and really see what you're made out of. You know, if you don't have any sort of pressure or stress or discomfort while you're exercising, working out, you're never going to grow. You're never going to, you know, push yourself to your physical limits. Pressure in the workplace gives the ones that have the opportunity to, to grow and the ones that have that mentality, it gives them the opportunity to take it to the next level. If you don't have that pressure, um, you're probably never going to grow in your organization or that organization is not going to last very long anyway. So that's, that's my perspective on it. You describe in your bio, you describe yourself as a poor Arab kid who was always different from everyone else. So I'm wondering what advice you would have for managers uh, who have Arab employees and to help them become more culturally sensitive. You know, um, that's a really good question. I, I didn't, I, I don't kind of uh, use the Arab thing kind of just like as a card, you know, in my back pocket and say, hey, you know, I'm Arab, so I got to, you know. Of course. Um, I, I think... I think wait, there's a card. Wait, there's yeah. a card for that. Wait, 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 oh yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Well, you know, you got to go to the Middle East to get it. Okay. <laughs> <There you> go. <laughs> um, no, I I think cultural sensitivity just starts with asking questions. Um, so, uh, you know, Muslims come from all sorts of backgrounds, right? In fact, um, the majority of Muslims are actually African. So, you know, I feel like. You know, Muslims probably don't have the best reputation in the U.S. ever since 9-11. Mm. And I feel like, um, you know, African-American communities also have a very difficult time in the U.S. just because of the racial tensions. And so all of my black Muslim friends, I really feel bad for oh, you because you really got the worst, <laughs> worst end of each stick. Um, but cultural sensitivity starts with just asking questions um, and just learning about that other person because you might think it's not a big deal to say, hey, you know, you're, you're Pakistani, right? And even though it's really not, I'm Palestinian, not Pakistani, <laughs> I'm not necessarily offended by it, but some people are. Because it's like, hey, you don't understand my culture. 
you know? So just ask questions. And whether it's an Arab employee, Mexican employee, it doesn't matter where they're from, ask and have a, a genuine interest in your employees. And I feel like that goes a very long way because um, I, I just did it. And I, I just went through all of my employees and spent one to three hours with each and every one of them. And I just dug deep and I want to see where are you from, man? Like what schools did you go to? What was the family dynamic? Um, you know, how did, how did you grow up? What were the issues that, you, you know, that brought you to this point? And having a genuine interest in your employees will never go out of style. And I think that applies to, you know, immigrant employees or, you know, uh, 10th generation American employees. It, it doesn't matter. Just have a genuine interest and ask questions. Got a few minutes left. I want to just have you touch briefly upon your prowess on social media and content creating every day to build your business. What are your top couple of tips for our listeners to parrot what you've done? Sure. So just to put a little bit of background here, in 2018, I spent a total of $5,598 on ads on social media, and I generated $3.2 million in revenue for my practice. I doubled up on it last year, and this year we're going to break the $10 million mark in revenue just this year alone. I don't have any billboards. My website really isn't that great. I don't run any radio ads. I'm not on TV. No traditional style of marketing, 100% digital, mostly on social media. And so my advice to uh, newcomers and people that have you know, been in their businesses for a long time is learn about social media. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. It's right. only going to get stronger and more important. And the people that master social media are the ones that are competing in 2025 and 2030 instead of the people that are looking to maximize billboards. Because when clients call my office, they're calling me from the accident scene. They're not waiting one or two days to search on Google and find someone and look through all the billboards and drive. It's a different type of branding. And so my advice to any young entrepreneurs and especially professionals in your business is start creating content, ideally video content. And I have, um, you know, if you're an attorney, I have a website, uh, www.ceomedia.com that has training just for attorneys. And it shows you, hey, here's what I did. Here's what you can do. It's absolutely free. Um, but start by creating some content. Yeah. How did you, you come to be known as the CEO lawyer? You know, that's a, that's a really good question. I wish I had a great story for it, but to be <laughs> honest with you, I was, I knew I wanted to create an Instagram page because everyone was doing Instagram. It was a cool thing to do. So in 2016, actually my page started as power moves. I was the name of my page and I just want to talk about power moves, you know, like, Oh, that's a boss thing to do. You know, like I just got my whole firm, you know, lunch and dinner for the whole week. That's a power move, you know? <laughs> and I thought, there's no end to that. Like there's, I'm not going to, not going to benefit in any way. It's just really a braggadocious type of page. So somehow I just kept strategically planning new names. I stumbled across CEO lawyer. I plugged it in and I was like, wow, this is a good name. No one has it. So I immediately booked it on all the social media platforms, got it trademarked, bought the website. Actually I didn't buy the website because it was like $500 and then someone bought it from under me and forced me to pay way uh, more a year later. Uh, um, but yeah, that, that's what waters. I did. And when you have a good social media name, get all of the handles, all that's of right. them, reserve them and yeah. trademark it. Absolutely. And so on that note, it is CEOLawyer.com and it is on Twitter and it is on Facebook and it is it's everywhere. On LinkedIn, it's the 
CEO lawyer. But anyway, the branding is very consistent to your point. <laughs> Ali, this has been such a pleasure. I mean, you're so dynamic. You got so much going on. Congratulations on all of it. And I think we can all take a cue and learn more about everything you. you have going on. So we appreciate your time today. Thank you guys so much. And look, if um, I do feel like I need to give back to the community. I've been blessed with so much growing up. And I, I really do believe that luck played a role in it. And so um, anyone that reaches out to me on my pages on CEO lawyer or anywhere, I will do my best to advise you and tell you, Hey, here's what you can do to your page to make it better. Right now, I think I'm the most followed injury lawyer in America on social media. And so professionals can benefit from this. And there's anything that I can do to help, even if it's not related to legal advice or a car accident or whatever. Although I do want that car accident case, you know, a lot of money there. <laughs> he just pointed uh, at the camera. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah hey, it's, it's just like I a natural for you. <laughs> But yeah, look, CEO lawyer on all the social media platforms. If you message me, I will do my best to get back to you. And just, you know, Audrey and Lee, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Um, you guys are great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend on iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get more great information at salesfuel.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.